have this this barrier of you know well i was taught in school evolution and i can't trust the bible um here's jesus here's people and 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 then we have this barrier in between and and we have to break this barrier down the the evidence supports the bible um and, and and so we are destroying these barriers that people have in their mind to that prevent them from taking the gospel seriously that prevent them from having to give an account to god part one of our conversation with author Nick Liguori, we learned some of the fascinating details about the similarities of flood legends found throughout the native people of the North and South American continents. Take as an example the flood legend of the Aztecs of central Mexico. Our featured guest author this week, Nick Liguori, briefly outlines the details of the Aztec flood legend in his new book, Echoes of Ararat. Nick tells us that what we know of their story comes from a 16th century manuscript called the Leyenda de los Soles, or Legends of the Sun, written in the Nahuatl language of the Aztecs. It is an anthology of Aztec lore believed to be commissioned by the Spanish for the purpose of the Aztec people to explain their creation narrative and beliefs. The Aztec story also contains aspects mirroring the Tower of Babel confusion in Genesis 11. The following excerpt comes from the English translation of the Leyenda de los Soles, found on page 137 of Echoes of Ararat. Quote, And the water lay for fifty-two years. And when they were to be destroyed, then Titlacahuan gave a command to the one called Tata, and to his wife, who was called Nin. And he said to them, Put aside your cares. Hollow out a big cypress log, and when it is Tozostli, April, and the skies come falling down, get inside. And so they got inside. Then he sealed them in and said, You must eat only one of these corn kernels, and your wife must eat only one. Well, when they had eaten it all up, they went aground. can be heard that the water is drying. The log has stopped moving. Then it opens. They see a fish. Then they drill fire and cook fish for themselves. Then the gods, Sitlalanukia and Sitlalatonic, looked down and said, Gods, who is doing the burning? Who is smoking the skies? Then Titlalquahan and Tezcatlipoca came down and scolded them. He said, What are you doing, Tata? What are you people doing? Then he cut off their heads and stuck them on their rumps, and that way they were turned into dogs. End quote. But our culture today is telling its own story, a complete antithesis of the ancient oral traditions of those who lived long before our time. We concoct narratives that assuage our fears about divine judgment. Science, we're told, has done away with mythical ancestral tales. There is no evidence of a flood. There is no divine judgment. 
There is no evidence that God had anything to do with the existence of the cosmos or life within it. This compelling body of evidence, however, is not often mentioned in secular anthropology. And if it is, it is often dismissed as coincidental. Floods happen all the time, so we shouldn't be surprised to see so many stories about floods. The Lord Jesus reminds us, however, that he is coming again. And just as in the days of Noah, so shall it be when Jesus returns. People continue to mock and ridicule the idea of Noah and the ark God instructed him to build. Secularists are presently appealing to the alleged stories the rocks are telling and concluding that there never was a flood and thus no divine judgment. On part two of my discussion with Nick, we discuss the obstacles in our modern age in presenting unbelievers with the truth of God's word. As Nick reminds us, we are in a spiritual battle. The conflict is real, the strongholds are formidable, but nothing that cannot finally be dismantled by the proclamation of gospel truth, which includes Noah's flood, as Jesus affirms its historicity in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. So what side do you take? Are you in the ark, or do you stand outside in disbelief? We hope this episode will point you toward the truth and glory of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we begin part two, I ask Nick more about the significance of these native flood stories for us today. So you either have the perspective of there's no flood, but it seems it seems odd as the, the, the as you say. And I, I just interviewed a gentleman, uh, Dr. Lewis Marcos, who's a, a professor at Houston Baptist University, and we did an interview called uh, "Myth Made Fact," and we talked about his new book, uh, where he goes back and he looks at uh, Greco-Roman myths, right? And he extracts what he calls pre-Christian truth from these Greco-Roman myths. If we are made in the image and likeness of God, then the stories we tell will resemble gospel truth or biblical truth or, or divine truth in some way, whether we intend it to or not. Uh, any good story that we tell, just look at our Marvel comic movies or our DC comic movies that we have. We have the the superhero person from another world coming to save us from our troubles, right? This is this is something that is very ancient. But Dr. Marcos and I were, were talking about the cultural similarities between Greco-Roman myths as a kind of preparatory, cultural preparatory grace that God gives these people so that when Jesus shows up, People go, oh, okay, so like Alexander the Great with, with the Greek language, spread of the Greek language throughout all the Mediterranean. But the, the, the point is, I think, and, and what I learned from Dr. Marcos and is something that I hear you saying, that if we didn't have a flood, uh, we, I mean, if there was no flood, uh, it, well, if there is a flood, if there was a flood, there should be these stories. We should have these stories. Because if there wasn't a flood, we're hard-pressed to explain why the prevalence of these stories and why there's so many. But because there was a flood, the, the, the numerous volume of stories that you've compiled here speak to the fact that, yes, this is exactly what we'd expect to find if, in fact, there was a flood. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, that just seems unanimous. Like, okay, set aside the geology and the science for just a second. Look at what everybody, look at all these tribes that have been around for a long time. Look at what they're saying, especially tribes isolated from Western Christendom and European Christianity and the advance of Christianity. Um, yeah. And I never, you know, 
again, I was told that in East Asia, they don't have these. I, I never expected to find a flood tradition from Korea. I never expected to find it from Japan, uh, from, from Australia, Africa, um, Europe, but, but we find these and it's, it's incredible. Um, I think another thing that's exciting about these is that they, they, um, they, they give a, a sort of a bridge to helping people from a tribe of people group to take the Bible seriously. And, um, you know, when they see wow, that you, your book has the, our story, the, the, this flood account that is, you know, matches our tradition yeah. and it, it opens up their hearts and minds to, to take the gospel seriously. Mm. Um, and then that's an exciting thing about this. It um, is. It really is. You, you mentioned myth and, and, uh, Paul talks about that, uh, you know, people had the truth about God and they preferred myths. That's and, right. And he, he talks about, you know, your, your myths are your problem. Your, your human traditions, you have and, and Jesus talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you take your human traditions more seriously than the word of God. Mm. You, uh, you, you have these speculations. He says, you know, you know, what's going to get you in trouble is your speculations. You have these your speculations and they're futile they're empty mm. Mm. Um, and you you have to apply the same uh skepticism to your own traditions and your own well i was taught that in school and this is what we just believe in america yeah that's such a good point nick because as i was reading you know you, you, your your remark here brings to mind romans one um you know in genesis one what does god tell us before sin enters the world we're supposed to have dominion over the animals right but after sin enters the world and we get to Paul's exhortation in Romans 1, what is sinful man doing? No longer does he have dominion over the animals, but he's worshiping them, right? So he's lost that when he yeah. lost that relationship with God, he ends up worshiping not the creator, but the creation because man is not going to not worship something. And uh, in my research for all of these podcasts with you and, um, and, and Dr. Clary from ICR, you mentioned his book. And uh, we talked to Dr. Hugh Ross about the flood. He did a whole series on the flood. So we have all these perspectives. But in my preparation, one thing I became very clear to me is that modern secular geology is, is exactly how you describe the, the tradition that here we are crying out, if you will, to the rocks to save us from God's judgment already. Right. This is this is what Revelation says is going to happen, that people will cry out to the rocks to save them from the wrath of the one who is coming again. Right. But it seems like and when I when I talk to atheists uh, about this and this is one thing that got me into doing this series in our podcast was because I heard it so often from the atheists that geology says there's no flood. But really what they're saying is there's no judgment. There's no God. If I can do away with the worldwide flood. I can exempt myself from the idea of God's judgment. And so in some ways, man is looking to the rocks to save him from the biblical flood. I found yeah. that fascinating. Uh, the idea that, ge that geology says there's no flood. No, geology cries out there was a flood. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we've created these these ideas for ourselves. We, we've created evolution. We've created uniformitarianism billions of years uh to like you say to uh as kind of a fortress to escape the the word of god and its application in our lives um and you know kind of a theme verse is second corinthians 10 
five, we are destroying speculations, Paul says, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that's one reason I wrote this book was that we, we have speculations again, uh, a lofty thing raised up. We have, we, we have this, this barrier of, you know, well, I was taught in school evolution and I, I can't trust the Bible. Um, here's Jesus, here's people. And, and, and then we have this barrier in between and, and we have to break this barrier down. It's, it's, it's false. The uh, it's, it's illogical. The, the evidence supports the Bible. Um, and, and, and so we are destroying these barriers that, people have in their mind to that prevent them from taking the gospel seriously that prevent them from having to give an account to God. We have to remove these excuses. They're false. The, the evidence says there was a flood. The evidence says Jesus came and was raised to the dead. The evidence says the, 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 the Bible is true. We have the prophecies of, of the coming uh, Messiah. And so we have to get rid of these excuses. Um, you know, Paul doesn't say, well, you know, just, uh, you know, just be kind of timid about it. And, you know, okay. Um, you know, we don't have any evidence or anything. No, Paul says we do have the evidence. Paul was reasoning, presenting evidence. It says in Acts 17 and, and 18, he was presenting evidence constantly and, and destroying these speculations so that people uh, have to, to, to look face to face with God and the Holy spirit can, can work on their heart and, um, and, and they have to to make a decision. Yeah, absolutely, Nick. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Paul in Acts 17. And, you know, before that speech on Mars Hill, he's he's confronting the idols of Athens. He's looking at all the, the altars to gods. And he looks at that one, of course, that he notices to an unknown god and then extrapolates the gospel to them through that particular uh, method. And then he quotes Greek poems, Greek poets. He quotes Epimenides and Aratus when he says, we, we are his offspring and in him we live and move and have our being. So he's building that bridge culturally, uh, as, as, as Dr. Marcos was saying in our interview, that there's that cultural bridge that God prepares a people in advance for, to, to receive the gospel. And I think that, that, that this, this, the remnant of the flood traditions that permeate all the ancient cultures are, are perfect bridges. I mean, they still are. Uh, for, for, for opening people's minds to, to the truth of the scriptures, as you said earlier. I want to go to, uh, on page 28 of your book, if you've got that there, um, we had mentioned earlier how there are um, rainbows uh, associated in some of these myths. So we're not just talking about a guy in a boat or, or you know, if, if that's not enough, you know, if all those similarities don't, don't knock, knock you down, then this one I found particularly moving. It was on page 28 from... Um, uh, the Canadians up in the, uh, let's see, exactly from where this, the Alberta, in the Alberta area, um, the Western Cree. Uh, you mentioned this story that was told in 1806 by a gentleman by the name of Mr. Thompson, uh, who recorded that uh, an unusual heavy period of rain occurred for three weeks, causing the, the, the Cree people to be very anxious. And he told of their reaction when the rain ceased and the clouds parted, giving way to a rainbow. Now, this was over 200 years ago, but you went to the original source of this. And uh, the parallel with Genesis, you, re- you say, is it is truly stunning. And I truly, I agree with you. Um, and he goes on to talk about uh, the sun lines of the rainbow. And, and it's the word sun line is in the native Cree tongue, the Pishim Kape. I'm probably killing it, but, and they... He had never, Thompson had never heard these words before until the storm came and they saw the rainbow. 
And he, he remarks, he's like, I'd never heard this before and I never heard it since. And he said, inquiring of the old men why they kept this name secret from me, they gave the usual reply. You white men always laugh and treat with contempt what we have heard and learned from our fathers. And why should we expose ourselves to be laughed at? And so this was very sacred to them. And they kept it close and near and dear to them because they didn't, they didn't, they didn't want the mockery. But I just thought that was one of the more fascinating tales about about the the rainbow in terms of of the native stories. It matches Genesis specifically. Um, it's it's not just like we don't just find these vague flood stories. We we find flood stories that match Genesis on multiple mm-hmm. specific details like that. Judgment, birds, seeds, the preservation, salvation. And a rainbow and a promise, you know, and now you see what the rainbow is co-opted in, in our culture today. To me, you know, the denigration of how the rainbow has been utilized in, in um, as a symbol for, you know, the LGBT community. It's 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 the control of the narrative, isn't it, Nick? Yeah. Yeah. And um, we, we, we have to we're, we're in a battle. We're in a spiritual battle and we have to. Um, and I said in the book, stop bringing a knife to a gunfight and and we need to realize the, the war that is going on for people's souls. We need to, we, we need to destroy these objections. Uh, we need to present a coherent case. We, we need to make it so that, that these issues people have between them and God, it bears. And, and some, and sometimes it's, it's a smoke screen. Sometimes, you know, you know, uh, I hold to evolution, but it's, it's really, you know, no, I've, I've got, I've got some pet sin and I, and I, I'm not willing to give up. Uh, I'm not willing to surrender my life to God. And so sometimes that thing is it, it there's an argument, but really that's just a smoke screen. Um, what did you find um, in your research in addition to the similarities we find in Genesis? What, why did these people preserve this story was it just the scale and how terrifying it must have been why do you think this story of all the things that might have remained in the, in the imaginations and minds of people why this story more than anything why do you think this one sticks out so so frequently throughout all the cultures that you see this repeated in, in yeah why, why do you think yeah and it's a great question uh but the flood left an indelible impression on people's minds just imagine that you live generation after Noah and you see still the scars of the, the flood on the, on the earth's topography. And it, it was just so uh, such, such a heavy thing on the mind, you know uh, the flood had just happened. This was something, this was an unprecedented event that left an indelible impression on people's minds. They went, they were scattered and it's, it, I tell you what, if if your your father, your grandfather just got off an ark because the earth was flooded and destroyed, you're not going to forget that one for a while. <laughs> right, right. And it's hard to it's hard to conceptualize why. Let's take what you said earlier about Gilgamesh. It's hard to conceptualize that mere cultural entertainment, if that's all these things were, would have such a lasting impression. We don't we we don't that just doesn't make any sense if this is just sort of theater from the ancient near east it doesn't it doesn't explain why this theater was so phenomenally popular 
does it? It just it's there's a, there's a gravity to the situation, a severity to the situation, yeah. like nine eleven. It, it was the ancient world's nine eleven. I mean, quite worse than that, of course. But uh, but you think about that. I mean, it, it makes sense. And to me, in my mind, just my opinion. But if you think about Genesis eleven being the last time that we all had one language, um, the most memorable event when your language is scattered is the flood. With, I mean, that's the last time we were all together. We went from the flood to the tower, and then monkeys, um, our scattering of our language. But, but that that would have been the last time we had a collective memory and knowledge of the language before we were scattered as a people group. So, it, and it's fascinating to me, Nick, that that all of these stories appear in the native languages of these people that that predate, you know, Christian missionaries. That we have these very unique. Wonderful, beautiful, and sometimes unpronounceable. Some of the elders aren't even aware of how to pronounce things as they were in the ancient days. But all of this stuff is is in their own language, which is also very hard to explain, isn't it? Right. Like you mentioned, it's it's a universal uh, tradition that we find. It's it's not limited to to the Middle East or one part of the world. It's it's it's, it's universal. I, I keep trying to go to try, try to research some place in the earth where I it was not found. I can't find one. Um, and the only, like wow. you say, the only explanation is that, that this, this is real. Um, the only way to account for this is, is, is that it really happened. Now in your, in your experience, I mean, I have my own idea about this, but why do you think that this kind of anthropology is not widely presented that to the extent that you're finding this, um, you're saying that this information is being suppressed or reinterpreted or misinterpreted or completely ignored you're finding flood narratives where you were told by professors you wouldn't find anything that's amazing right well it's a it's it's not a welcome truth for um you know the bible says that we mankind has you know created myths for ourselves to you know to to suit uh what what we want to do um so this is not something that that the world wants to, you know, find out there. This is, this is not something that's welcome. Um, and, and in some cases it just hasn't been, uh, you, you know, there, there's some that some haven't been uh, publicized very well, um, but it's, it's, there, there's no excuse. There, there's so much information out there. Honestly, there's no excuse for a university professor to, to say that, well, I don't think that the, flood account is attested to in, in tribal traditions across the world. Um, it, just like the in, in Southern California, um, a, a tribe that had these ancient songs, there are songs that commemorate the flood in detail. And we find those in China and other places. It says in Romans that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. John chapter three, this is the judgment that, that light came into the world, but men preferred darkness over light because their deeds were evil we kind of put that suppression we we put a we put act we put a stamp of academia on it and and suddenly it becomes you know what science says or what my anthropology anthropology professor says or what geology says or you know the the, the narrative is science 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 and we're letting science dictate the the conversation whether it's you know from vaccines to the age of the earth to you know what the rocks say what the stars say how science disproves God and all of this stuff, the stuff that the the control of the narrative really does seem to be uh, found in in secular science and go with the science and science science science, and uh, it's really I think your book is so so needed. I mean, it's just you don't and and the wonderful thing is you don't have to read this 
from cover to cover, you can go to page 120 and you can read that. You can go back to to another page because you have all these little snippets right there and they're referenced and they're footnoted. And um, and so it's a, it's a wonderful resource. We need this voice, Nick. So thank you so much for writing this book. It's fantastic. Echoes of Ararat, 300 flood legends from North and South America. Do you want to go into a little bit about um, what you're finding in the Orient as you're doing your research? I don't want to give away too much of your book, but what are you discovering as you're going east now? Yeah, um, like I say, I, I keep trying to find a part of the world where we don't find flood legends, where we don't find <laughs> Tower of Babel, the, uh, yeah. the yeah. Eve created from the rib of Adam. Uh, mm-hmm. we, and I'm looking forward to uh, to publishing this, and it's uh, probably a year, I'm probably probably two years away from publishing. But okay, the Polynesians had um, amazing traditions of the flood. Um, Really? And as far, wow. uh, now, in, in Easter Island, I'm, I'm not going to say I have a flood legend from Easter Island, but I have a tradition of the creation of man and woman, the, the first woman from man's rib. In, in Easter Island, hmm. the, the most remote inhabited island in the world, um, Tahiti, wow. you know, Fiji, all these islands, um, the Philippines, and, and I'm going to be researching more in the Philippines soon. Um, Every then we can look at Southeast Asia. Every tribe, I have a source that says every tribe in Vietnam has a tradition of the flood. And then they say, wow. well, but they're not. Uh, it's not to be confused with the Noahic flood. There's no account of judgment. There's no ark. Uh, no, that's not true. And and I can't wait hmm. to present the evidence that that's not true. Um, that's you know, exciting. and like you say, the narrative. What the Bible, the truth of the Bible. You know, in in our culture, this is. We decided that this is not fit for public consumption, so we have to create something more palatable for ourselves. Evolution, um, mm. you know, yeah. secular humanism, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and, and remember, mm-hmm. you know, science, science, science. Well, I, I encourage everyone to be into science. I love science, and absolutely, but, you know, yeah, I'm not knocking it. Paul says, remember what he said to Timothy: "Beware of what is falsely called science." Not everything that says science is really scientific. That's a, you know, it's it's it's. It's silly how some people are using mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, not everything that is called knowledge or science or is truly that. And I just did a uh, an interview with uh, James uh, Sinclair, who's a cosmologist and a physicist. Uh, we were reviewing a debate uh, between William Lane Craig and uh, cosmologist, cosmologist Sean Carroll, who's an atheist. And Dr. Carroll's very eloquent. It's a very nice gentleman, very knowledgeable about cosmology, but his his theology is is you know it's off the map. Um, in terms of the kinds of claims he's making about what we should expect if God exists, what kind of universe would we expect, what kind of world would we expect if God existed, and he's making all these theological claims, and James and I were talking about this very issue, what you just bring up, that when a scientist says something, um, they can say things about God and philosophy if they want to. That's we're not we're not forbidding that. Of course they can, but the the problem is that a lot of us will just go, oh, a scientist said it, so therefore it's almost like. Uh, as James said, we look at scientists like high priests, and they can say pretty much anything, and we we tend to give them the, the 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 carte blanche of well that must be true because a scientist said it, or it must be scientific, and so there's that kind of thing that we're we're up against as well. We have to be uh, wise as serpents, uh, as and harmless as doves in trying to discern uh, what is true from what is false. And uh, the the Paul mentions this in Colossians the. The, the empty philosophy it's not against philosophy but it's against the empty philosophy of man those those false narratives and the strongholds as as paul says in in corinthians that we're tearing down the strongholds 
um, that uh, that exist today in our minds to get at the truth of what God is. And I think your book is a, a wonderful addition to this uh, narrative to this discussion because it brings a voice that is, you know, I've wanted to for most of my Christian life. I wanted to know more about the anthropological history of if there was a flood, what did it look like? Well, we should have evidence. Well, why can't I find it on Google? <laughs> you know, it takes a little bit more. That's the problem. We we believe whatever Google yeah, says. Right, right. If it's not on, if it's not like when I go hunting for a book, if I can't find it on the first five pages, well, the book must not exist or it's impossible because, but in truth, what I'm looking at is a giant software company, a giant tech company filtering the information from me, right? Uh, that, that, you, yeah. you you have to go beyond the Google search to find this stuff. You really do. But it's out there, as you say. A huge number of scientists agree with the Bible, and they find that their research confirms the Bible. Uh, we, a, a huge number of scientists are, are, are seeing that Darwinism, it, it, there are huge problems. Uh, and you see the, the, the problems that Darwinism is having and from genetics and the fossil evidence. Yes, right. I, I, there are just uh vast numbers of scientists who say mm, yeah mm-hmm. i'm a scientist and i believe the bible and no you know evolution is not true uh the bible is true and when we look at archaeology and 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 so many discoveries and uh and we live in an exciting time all, all the discoveries that are coming in confirming the bible yeah and what's fascinating about this this compilation of of narratives that you found nick is so it's a striking contrast between our culture, our modern Western scientific culture, and and the, these these native peoples. Is that the flood has something to do with God? Like all of these stories, right. there's some kind of it. It may not be one God, maybe it's multiple gods, but there is an obvious and taken for granted notion in all of these stories, at least the ones that I've read. And I would I would think that that's what you're finding that the, all of these stories have something to do with divine displeasure. Um, whether it's polytheistic or monotheistic, there seems to be the sense of divine displeasure uh, prevalent here. And, and in our culture, we've, we have really worked to mitigate, if not eradicate from our cultural, collective cultural narrative, the idea of God's creation. So you think about this, what you'd said earlier. Creation is, we attempt to negate creation through evolution, and then we, we attempt to negate God's judgment through geology, and then we attempt to negate God's creation through cosmology. So the dominant scientific paradigms. But I, I agree with you. You said earlier there's so, there's a cadre of, of Christian scientists who find compatibility with their faith and what the universe says. I fully believe that everything in the physical world, there's nothing in the Bible that, that is contradicted by anything in the physical world. It's the theories of mankind that come into conflict with what the Bible says. But the predominant narrative, if you go from evolution to geology to... to, to um, Cosmology, it's interesting how similar, if you go to abiogenesis, right? Life begins with a little dot of something. And then cosmology, it goes from a little dot, a singularity, to a big cosmos. And notice how something starts very small and then expands over time. They're very similar narratives, but what's the one thing they both have in common? We can try to explain everything without the need for God. And uh, I liken it to Alvin Plantinga, the the Christian philosopher, and he says this, he says, you know, look, there's no good evidence. And you think about this. This is really brilliant. There's no good evidence that uh, there's no good evidence that there's an even amount of stars in the universe, 
right? So there's, how, there's no good evidence that we can actually make a hard case that there are even amount of stars. But Plantinga says, he says, that's not evidence, that's not good evidence that there is an odd number of stars. He says the proper thing is agnosticism about that, not odd number stars, right? And this is, he uses this analogy for atheism. So when you look at the universe, if you think Christianity doesn't fail, it doesn't work, that's not evidence for atheism, right? That, that's not a positive case for atheism. The, the correct answer is agnosticism, but still, and, and he argues in that paper in the book uh, that, 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 that atheism is not a rational position because the rational position is we, we don't know because atheism really, if you're going to argue positively for atheism, you have to assume the mind not only of all the other human beings who have ever existed, but you have to assume the mind of the creator. You have to have an omniscient mind to know that an omniscient God does not exist. And I think your book points out that there's no way a human being can has, has this bird's eye view of all of these cultures the way in which God does. You can't explain away. There's too many similarities in the, in the stories that you've gathered, Nick, to just explain them away as local uh, legends because they all have to do with God and judgment and displeasure and widespread death and a boat and birds. It's amazing. You've you've got a winner here. You really do. I welcome anyone to uh, to try to give a a materialistic uh, non uh, non biblical account for this evidence. Um, and and I, I love our atheist friends. We, yes, we, we love our atheists <laughs> and, uh, and 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 encourage them to check this out. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. A mistake that we're making is that well, and it's been going on for a long time. Is well. The Bible is true spiritually, but uh, on physical things, historical things, I trust my professor. I trust yeah. my my teach my high school teacher. Right. You remember what what Paul talks about um, that that Satan. You know there are these doctrines of demons, and um, that Satan will offer. Remember, Satan offered Eve a a, a, a lie, uh, an appealing lie. Uh, Satan's going to offer us lies. Satan offered Jesus in the temptation. Hey. God said, you know, he will command his angels concerning you. Hey, there's scripture supporting this. So uh, it seems fine if you jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Um, we have to have the, like you said, we have to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Uh, not, not as shrewd as sheep. We, we, have to be, we have to be smarter than sheep. And we, have to be, we have to be smart about this. And when there's a doctrinal error, when Satan throws a error um, for us to, you know, latch onto, it has disastrous consequences. And so you look at the consequences of just accepting this idea that, well, I'm not going to trust the Bible for historical uh, truth. I'm just going to accept it for spiritual things. Look at the fruit that that's born. It's, it's, and there's no basis for that view in scripture. Um, so these, these things that we take just willy nilly, um, you know, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm the, the flood, maybe the flood was local. Maybe it was, uh, maybe there were billions of years. The, these ideas that we that we just accept, it's like a Trojan horse, and it has consequences. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's it's so interesting too because um, one of the things that Dr. Ross brought up, of course, he's old Earth, but uh, one of the things that he brought up and did so well was that uh, these certain scientific things that we hold today are not in our creeds. You know, they're not finally the things that we needed to be divided over. And so he always is engaging in this young old debate 
and um, and and so he tries to he tries to emulate the love of Christ, and I think he does a, a good job, whatever you think about his science. But but I think you're right. I, I would accept that Genesis is absolutely history. Um, it's 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 an error to read to to put on the science glasses and read the text through the lens of science. But but rather it should be the other way around that we're letting the text read. And, and speak to us, but we, we tend to put on those modern glasses and say, well, you know, modern anthropology says there was no Adam and Eve. Modern biology says there was no Adam and Eve. Um, you know, my my geology professor says there was no flood. My astronomy professor says God doesn't need to be in the equation. And, and I think what you said, just interpreting the Bible spiritually has opened the door to our acceptance of of what we hear in in the universities, which you know are controlling the conversation right now, and um, we we need to be able to to maintain our our um, our truth that we have. That Jesus says, "You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." And and when Jesus is after his resurrection, he's walking with the disciples on Emmaus Road in Luke twenty four. Um, Luke writes that uh, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures concerning himself, basically saying that the Old Testament is about me, guys. And as the disciples were walking along, as you know, Nick, they didn't even recognize him as they're getting the greatest sermon probably ever told about the new, the Old Testament. Um, they don't even recognize who their teacher is. They don't. They, they don't. They go seven miles. I think that's the distance from Jerusalem to Emmaus or something like that. So it would have been a couple hours, three or four hours of walking, perhaps. Who knows? But they don't even recognize him until he's gone, and then they're like, "Wasn't our weren't our hearts burning?" And their eyes were opened, and then they then they recognized who he was. And I think that's a lot of us too that we we take the we we take the world and 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 we sort of close our eyes and and accept what the world says, and then when Jesus comes along right beside us, we don't recognize him. And well, that can't possibly be true, Jesus. That's that's too radical a truth, right? I mean, you know, and I think that's that's kind of, I think that's somewhat, I think what you're saying there. But 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 th- this this is this is out there. God meant for the flood uh, to be remembered, uh, to be known. We we have the very specific details, and I think your book does a great job. We can take the Genesis narrative and go, this is the one from all from which all other stories come because the epic of gilgamesh being the only one that's even close in in time period uh, there's no way that these native american legends there's 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 no comparison there's zero um and uh so it's amazing especially the feature of the specificity of the birds with the raven and the dove um i was just reading um, this morning about about more about the birds that were involved in this, and we mentioned something too at the beginning of the broadcast, and I want you to and we can wrap up with this really quickly. Um, we don't have this in uh, Genesis, but how does the Earth Diver theme? What is the Earth Diver in some of these legends, and how does how do you see that fitting what we have in Genesis? What, what, what is that exactly? So the Earth Diver, we find a lot of accounts where they say this animal. Um, a, uh, a a small rodent or um, another animal after the flood uh, it, the the man on the boat sent this animal diving down in the water uh, in search of earth and and after two or three tries an animal came back with earth with with some mud some clay in its mouth and from that uh, the the man Noah this old man on the boat took that earth and recreated the world so it's a distorted account of there's a memory there of, uh, by the way, some of these, it's, they come back with a, a leaf. Some of these, there's that dove and the raven are in the story as well. So there's, there's uh, tremendous parallels with the, the Noahic sending of the birds 
Um, it, you can see in these accounts, it, it's just so similar to Noah sending the raven and the dove in search of something. And, and, and there's also, I believe, in, there, there's also Genesis 1, the, the spirit hovering over the earth. There, there, I think there is a remnant of Genesis 1 in these accounts as well. Okay, okay. Well, I thought, too, what it brought to, and I don't know this, but, but something that, that came to mind as I'm reading these Earth Diver accounts, I, I think, well, where are they occurring? They're occurring in parts of the world where you have beavers and you have prairie dogs, right, that, that, are, that are earth diving animals. And so if you're surrounded by these as a, as a native people, uh, you know, here comes the beaver with a twig. Here comes the prairie dog with dirt in his claw, right? So obviously, I think over time, that, that I mean, that could be something. I was just right. guessing. They just took Noah's dove and replaced it with right. a beaver. With, with the muskrat. Usually it's a muskrat. Yeah, yeah, with, with something local to, to, to more local to their to their to where they're inhabiting. But uh, that's fascinating that you have an animal. Nonetheless, look at the similarity. You have some kind of animal as a messenger uh, coming back with uh, evidence that the earth is drying out and returning to some semblance of normalcy. I found it fascinating, too, because the Bible doesn't give this account, but some of these tales did. Um, in some of these bird or animal accounts, some of the birds, like the vulture, I, I was just reading one account uh, this morning, that the vulture, how this, this native tribe has this, this concept of why the vulture is the way it is, because the vulture was sent out in the flood story, uh, found a bunch of dead animals and dead bodies and started eating and didn't return to the boat like he was supposed to to let let the person know what was going on, and so the vulture was punished, and now that's why the vulture eats dead carcasses. I thought that was fascinating as well. Right, that's a memory of Noah's raven. Yeah, uh, and then they've added some unique elements there. Yeah, but but the animal, the, the similarity of the animal being the the entity that brings word that the earth is is returning to normal. I mean, why not have if if this is all a hodgepodge of different peoples? Uh, why don't you just have a guy getting off the boat going, yeah, the, the ground's dry. Okay, everybody off the boat. Why does it have to be an animal that goes out and finds something? And this is this is prevalent. Yeah, because that's what happened, right? Because that that's that's what happened. That's what that happened. Was that's fascinating. I would just encourage you know your, your listeners that what this evidence points to is that we have a big God. God is not small. He's not limited to spiritual the spiritual realm over here, but God can't do what my atheist professor says he can't do. No, God is big. We have a big God who who hears our prayers and answers prayer and is in control of the world. And just as the Bible is true on spiritual truths, so it is true on physical, historical, scientific truths. God is not limited, and and He is the God of 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 our our, our souls. He is the God of history. He's the God of science. He's the God of geology. He's the God of archaeology. Uh, and and uh, Amen. Yeah, it's that's yeah. fantastic. And and it's. It's uh, the one thing I think uh, we can absolutely agree upon is the, the ark was a archetype of Christ. That that in the yes. ark, uh, yeah. you know, eight souls were saved, and and this is what Jesus does for all of us. He is the the one in whom we are saved from coming judgment again. And I think you know nobody knows exactly when he's coming back, but but he is coming back, and this is a. Uh, I mean, when Jesus talks about his return in, in the Gospel of Matthew um, and, and Luke, I think it's Matthew 24, Luke 17, that, that, that he, in the days of Noah, just like it, when, when Jesus returns, it will be just like in the days of Noah. People will be getting married and day, things will be going on as normal, right? Uh, you know, a lot of people think, oh, the coronavirus and all this stuff is the end of the world and wars and all this stuff. No, what does Jesus say? When I come back. People are going to get married. People are going to be eating and drinking. It's going to be normal. 
when Jesus returns. It's going to take everybody off guard. But he says, but when the Son of Man comes, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And we've all got to answer that question. That's right. And and so we we have to, like Noah, um, we don't have, thankfully we don't have to build a boat because Jesus built it for us. It is him. Amen. He is the one. Yeah. We don't we don't work to earn our salvation. We don't have to labor to build a boat. Um, the way we the way we are saved is Jesus has done all the work. That's why he cried out on Trust the cross. His righteousness. That's right, and that's that's the only thing, right? That's we don't have. Hey, hey, Lord, I built a boat. Hey, Lord, I I saved twenty people. Hey, Lord, I taught Sunday school all my life. You don't you don't build a boat like that to save yourself because Jesus has done all the work that that we need yeah. to. And so the the ark. I love one of my favorite couple of my favorite passages in Genesis about the ark is Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, right? He didn't mm. earn grace in the eyes of the Lord. God says Noah was righteous. God, Noah walked with God. And so Noah finds this grace. And then before the waters come, um, the Bible says, now I'm, a, I'm an adult convert, so I had a problem with this story for a little while um, coming, coming to Christianity because in this particular story when I see uh, you know, God closes the boat, right? I think of God's giant hand coming out of the sky and sort of pushing the door. And this was an image in my mind for the longest time. I don't know why. But then as I, you know, you had to get past that. I had to get past that. You know, it was like a Bugs Bunny cartoon of God and the giant hand closing the boat on the little Lego miniature or whatever. But but then I realized after, you know, maturing in my understanding of Scripture that that what we have here is is something like the pre-incarnate Christ, who knows how long did he help Noah build the boat? But here he is, like he appeared to Moses and Abraham and Job. That here he is in in the pre-incarnate person of of who he is. This is this is the Lord Jesus Christ before he was born. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus, I think, closing. The, so it's not a giant finger from the sky. It's actually God with us, um, you know, and and sparing Noah. All right, and and so it began. But I think the flood is 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 not only a story of judgment and terrible judgment. It's a story of grace and, and mercy. And, um, you know, I know that uh, it's probably, I, would, I think you would agree, Nick, it's probably one of the stories in the Bible that is attacked most frequently by our, I say attacked, it is, by, uh, by skeptics and atheists. It's a lightning rod. It is, it really is. Animals in a boat and, you know, all this stuff. Um, well, like you say, it's, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus. And there yeah. are so many prophecies from Joseph and, 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 uh, and Jacob and Isaiah that you can get into. It's, it's one of these prophecies about yeah, Jesus. It really is. It truly is. And that's, that's what he says to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. It's all about me. Here's how I am represented in creation. Here's how I'm represented in the flood stories. Here's how I'm represented in the prophets. And it's interesting that Jesus identifies so intimately with the days of Noah and with, of all prophets, Jonah. You know, I'm going to be just like Jonah. And Jonah was super disobedient, got swallowed by a fish, um, and then was spewed out three days later. I mean, there's a fulfillment of prophecy. But it ultimately goes back to, as you know, the first prophecy ever uttered, the Proto-Evangelion in the, in the Garden of Eden. Um, the, talking to the serpent, God says, he will crush your head, you will bruise his heel. The seed of the woman. Wow. And, you know, so there it is, before the flood, before the cross, before anything, that God has us all in Christ. And, 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 and Satan is, is, has lost from the beginning. And, uh, you know, as Revelation says, he's furious because he knows he has a short time. But uh, but this podcast and your work, uh, Nick, I, I hope, you know, will plant seeds and get people to think about um, the, the, the flood is real. And, and since the flood is real, that Jesus affirms the flood and, and he is returning and that will be true. And we don't want people waiting around until that happens 
until it's too late, now is the time to to turn to turn to Christ, which is what repentance is, turning from sin and turning to Jesus. I, I hope a lot of people will, will dig into the evidence, all, all kinds of evidence out there, and see that, you know what, this I didn't believe this book in, in school, but now my faith in this book has been restored, and therefore I trust in Jesus. Amen. That's the best thing. That's a great way to end it. This is all about... It's not about science. It's not, I mean, it, 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 like you said, God is the God of everything, right? It, of Colossians, by him and through him, or through him all things have been created. He, he sustains all things by the word of his power. He is the Lord and the Savior of mankind and the world, and he is coming again. The earth and the world will be consumed in fire, but he will recreate us, and uh, we will be with him forever. That's the greatest news. Amen. So uh, thank you again, uh, Nick. Wonderful book. Uh, a great resource, whether you're a Christian or or not. Um, this is something. This is quite a bit of evidence that uh, Nick has compiled. That I think uh, is is a welcomed addition to any bookshelf, whether you're a skeptic, a Christian, a secular anthropologist, a scientist. The evidence is here. There is plenty, and it's footnoted, documented. There are stories all over the world. Nick has part two coming about uh, Southeast Asia and and the rest of the world. So uh, blessings to you, Nick, on that endeavor. Uh, as you uh, be dad and try to write a book. I, I tried to write a book uh, a couple of years ago. We did get it done, but my goodness, I couldn't imagine having children and trying to write a book at the same time. I don't know how you do it. So uh, kudos to you and being a dad and, and being an author. Great book, easy to read, uh, fantastic resource. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you very much, Daniel. King David writes in Psalm 8 that when I consider thy heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Do the heavens matter to us today? How can a deeper appreciation for the heavens strengthen and encourage us in our faith? This is Good Heavens, a podcast taking a deeper look into the heavens to edify and encourage believers, to exhort non-believers, and to glorify God. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information on this podcast or any of the other apologetic resources from Watchman Fellowship, visit watchman.org today. For Watchman Fellowship, I'm Dave Mitchell.